This conversation on postmodernism features Andrew Atwood, Laurel Broughton, Thomas Klasnick, Andrew Kovacs, Jimenez Lai, Michael Loverich, Anna Niemark, James Tate, and Ellie Ward. Produced for Attention, the Princeton Audio Journal for Architecture. I think one of the reasons maybe why postmodernism is on the table again today is because of its kind of discursive relationship to architecture as a body of knowledge and how how we pick up things from that body of knowledge and rework them, alter them, modify them. I think when we look at the 90s and the early 2000s, we find that a lot of things that were maybe more properly belong to kind of architecture as as a field or or as a discipline. We kind of moved away from those during during those two decades and I think towards the end of, of the first decade of this century we began to actually kind of pick up those things that were were being discussed in postmodernism and, and began to kind of rework them again. This issue, Keywords on Postmodernism, focuses on several young voices in the field of architecture today. Attention has asked each participant to weigh in on a trend that is evident in their work and in practice at large, a return, whether consciously or not, to postmodernist tropes, which are the key words of this issue. We start with Andrew Kovacs, with whom we are discussing the death of the utopian project and the general anything-goes mentality of postmodernism. I mean, I, I think it's also kind of other, it's like its own grand narrative, where the grand narrative is a bit like anything kind of goes. Maybe it is a stylistic thing, but there's definitely way more of a freedom, and I, I guess I appreciate that word more, freedom. Rather than being uh, limiting, it's expansive. I don't think people read it as, like, the death of utopia. I mean, I think that's a totally valid reading, but I think people look at it and they just think, like, oversized columns. Or they think, like, bright colors. I think that's what people think when they think of postmodernism. I think that it's actually way more complicated and rich, and, and that's one of the definition or one of the readings of it as the kind of death of modernism, of course, and, like, the death of this sort of utopianism. But I think when people generally say it, they mean like columns that are just like oversized. But I'm also interested in modernism, or being interested in postmodernism at least allows you to be interested in everything. I mean, if you look at these like postmodern books, like survey books by like Charles Jenks, like if you look at the Jenks books, there's like everything is included. Like I actually just. Got one here today. Got one yesterday from Jenks. Another one. And it's funny because, like, uh, you have, let's see what you have here. You have the Hancock Building. You have Craig Elwood. Uh, and, and this book is called Architecture Today, a great title. Uh, then you have uh, Hayduck. You have Richard Meyer. You have Robert Stern. You have John Johansson. You have Japanese architects. Isozaki, etc. But then you have these great things here in the back. Like you have the chapters called the Commune Builders. So he has like Drop Cities, Buckminster Fuller, Geodesic Domes. But then you also have what he calls handmaids. So things like Watts Towers or kind of people that are doing architecture but not trained as architects. 
You have Clarence Smith House of Mirrors in Woodstock, New York, which is a really cool building. But then it goes on and it gets even stranger because then he has these, these great things that, I don't know if you can see them, but they're like buses. It's upside down. These buses that have been converted into, you know, school bus with second story added towing trailer. Converted school bus, early 1970s. Bus with second story and balcony added. And then, like, a whole kind of, like, section of, like, elevations. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I mean, looking through this, it's actually kind of not, And then you get inflatables. So, uh, if everything goes. I mean, architecture today seems more exciting than... I mean, architecture today in the past seems more exciting than architecture today today. <laughs> I think these Jenks books reveal that way more is kind of permissible to talk about. There's a different type of utopianism in living in a school bus versus living in an inflatable versus living in a Hayduck building. Now we'll hear from Laurel Brockton, followed by Andrew Atwood and Anna Niemark, and then Jimenez Lai, with their thoughts on the resurgence of postmodernism. Well, I mean, it's funny. I think that... Um... Like, I don't have a full idea of who else you're talking to um, for this t topic, but I feel like I'm probably the one who's furthest away from the center of, um, or whose work maybe is furthest away from the center of, di like, discourse in a certain sense. Um, so how do I feel about postmodernism or whether or not it's relevant in my practice? I definitely know that when I was in school, when, when I would try to do things similar to what I'm doing now, it kind of in a school studio situation, they would immediately get shut down as an, a, a small lecture about how we don't do stuff like that would occur in this kind of patronizing way. I, in a certain way, because of my varied extra-architectural background, my relationship to postmodernism is more literary or something than it actually is like Leon Creer or so, you know, something like that. And so for me, it becomes about a kind of, I, I think, I always think of it as a kind of like duplicity and sort of uncertainness and a kind of playing with point of view. And I think those things, those things kind of come out in my, in my work where there's not necessarily a correct way of seeing, seeing anything, be it like understanding what scale it's at or, or kind of playing with the function something appears to be functional in one way and actually is not and it's functional in a different way I'm I am I'm interested in every like a kind of in the repurposing of everyday objects and I and in that I'm very interested in the baggage that they have probably unlike some of our colleague group I'm not interested in classicism or really in history as a thing as much. A term like that, like a really, really big term like that, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm uncomfortable answering it, like responding to it directly, but I'll just sort of make a comment about big terms. They, uh, they 
for me, they just they sort of come in and out of focus based on when I think they're sort of productive to address and I'm specifically thinking about them or I might need something about them. I don't know. I, I'm on, I, and I, maybe this is Zana and I sort of like, I, I can't speak for Anna, but I would just say my own kind of hesitancy is just like, it's not something that I've specifically thought about recently, like directly. And it's difficult for me when I haven't thought about it specifically to address it as anything other than it's, let's say it's references to a kind of style. So when you say postmodern, I think about, I mean, I, Mark, like what you were just saying, I think specifically about um, how it's used primarily probably by designers as a kind of style that refers to some kind of historical whatever. And when I feel, when I hear people attacking it or addressing it, that is, that's immediately what comes to mind, which is just to say, I'm not necessarily thinking about a kind of larger post-structuralist framework that might um, provide a sort of way in which I understand the world or the way in which I operate the world. I just, I simply can't deal with things on that level, but, I, but it does conjure sort of images of the kind of Pomo figuration stuff that a series that a bunch of our friends are doing. So when you say postmodernism, I think Pomo and I think of like Jimenez Lai and design with the company, at least as designers, at least I can sort of comfortably use it in that way. Because it's simply just a term that allows us to have a conversation about a setup, like a like a, a type of work, a style of work. I think that's okay for me, you know. I, otherwise, I would have to I'd have to go back and kind of read my Jameson to have to be able to answer that question in a kind of broader, which I just haven't done, you know, in five years. I don't know if that's I don't know if that's a fair question. I just would say like the anxiety that I have about addressing that question is is I think there is a kind of common understanding of it amongst a group of people. And that's related to style, and I'm okay with that. There was always this lack of self-awareness. I didn't realize I was postmodern until I moved to L.A. So I had since had colleagues who would use the word postmodernism uh, or postmodern to, to kind of slap a pejorative uh, sticker on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, I, you know, it's fine. But the, let's look at, let, let's maybe dissect, uh, dissect this thought. Uh, when, when I think about postmodernism, I, I want to think about the, um, one of my favorite stories, which was told to me by Joseph Grima. Uh, he was talking about the uh, allegory of the shovel. Once upon a time, there was a shovel. You use it, it's a great shovel. You, you form a relationship with it. Uh, and one day, the spade uh, is damaged. So, of course, you, you, you replace it. You replace the spade and you put it on the handle. And so you keep using it. Uh, and then the next year, the, um, the handle's damaged. Naturally, you know, you, you get, get a new handle, so you replaced it. So now nor, neither the spade nor the handle were its original hardware. But can we still call this the same trouble? And I think it's a really interesting thought, uh, which is to say, you know, when you call something a name and it has a hardware and it also has a software, is it the same thing? So to me, postmodernism. Uh, let's let's maybe think of think of its parts, right? There's a part of postmodernism that is time specific. In other words, it, it's a description of time. There is also a way of thinking about postmodernism as a look. So it's a style, okay? And there's also postmodernism as a theory. The intellectual tradition of postmodernism versus the stylistic tendencies of postmodernism versus the time period of postmodernism are three separate things. And perhaps I've participated in the latter two, uh, inadvertently, one way or another. But uh, to, to call somebody Pomo, like, 
I mean, I, I guess I just don't really like it when people like pejoratively call somebody something because I think the the word in itself should be innocent. Because once you do that, it means that we like we begin the path of saying something's off center, where we we begin the path the path of burning books actually to say that okay this is taboo we're not going to talk about it as an educator do you want to burn books <laughs> you know like should we ban certain ideas uh, from the form of education uh, no no absolutely not but then maybe that that in itself is also a kind of postmodern attitude no i've been around people who are very uh let's say inclusive with history and i i like that and it means that if i want to be a scholar it's only scholarly to quote when you write an essay do you want to do creative writing that has no bearing to thoughts that came previously? Fine, go go make some haiku poems or something with architecture. But if if someone wants to do something scholarly, of course we quote. And you know, if you want to maybe wink or nod at history, um, I think it's only smart to do it. Not just smart, but academic. It's only academic to 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 quote. I think it's also natural for people to want to categorize. It's fine. I don't know. I, I, like. Again, I, I don't think I'm postmodern at all. Uh, but if somebody else thinks so, you know, yes, sure. Next, we'll hear from Ellie Ward and Thomas Klasnick, followed by Michael Loverich. I don't know. It's a weird thing. It's definitely something that everybody seems to be talking about at the moment. I kind of struggle with names for things, you know, putting a label on a thing generally, because I think it's really difficult to define anything, um, especially, you know, something kind of creative and artistic. Whether it, de- I, I, don't, I don't know what it defines in the way that people are talking about it at the moment. I like it because it means there's lots more things I like being produced and being published, and there's a lot more kind of colourful, kind of poppy work being done by lots of different practices and lots of different artists as well like it's you know it's not just architecture there's a lot of kind of graphic design and generally creative work being done in a much more kind of fun and poppy and colorful way that hasn't been happening until kind of more recently so I'm enjoying that mm. um, whether that's a comeback I don't know I don't think so it's definitely, I mean, I think what's happening now is, is just about the 80s, which postmodernism is just like a tag that some people have put on it or not. I mean, a lot of people who don't work in architecture probably wouldn't know what postmodernism is. A lot, I mean, a lot of graphic designers who are doing uh, lots of kind of 80s-themed work would probably not call it that. They would just call it, you know, kind of 80s throwback kind of stuff. That, I mean, that's really fun for me because, um, you know, I kind of remember the 80s, but not in any kind of architectural sense or, or design sense at the time. But it's something that I've been interested in since I've been, been studying. It's something that I've kind of I'm drawn to. And the more I study and the more I kind of output, the more I kind of want to look at the 80s at the moment. I think, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't recognise, I suppose, this sort of sense of there being... A a singular movement to which people are trying to subscribe. I think there are lots of movements or references that people are drawing on from kind of historical perspective. And kind of the, the way in which we live today with the ease of access to imagery and uh, uh, you know, ideas from throughout history. That, you know, if we open Google and see a 
you know, how many tabs can you keep open on your Chrome at one time? And I think that, in a way, is more how I would see the variation in styles that have been appearing. I, I, I don't know if there's... Maybe there is a, yeah, a bit more of the aesthetic of the postmodern. Maybe a few more tabs of that are now open, but I don't know that it's uh, dominant in, mm. to the extent that maybe some of the media have been describing it recently. I think it's just cyclical. I think it's just a fashion thing. I, I was mm. actually going to talk about you know architectural education as being one of these places where where you're, we're seeing this stuff. I teach, um, you teach, but talk a lot about kind of trends in drawing, drawing styles and drawing kind of techniques and, you know, different kinds of kinds of representation. And um, I remember, I mean, I, I, I was, I did my BA God, eight, only eight years ago and I remember I was probably the only one in the room drawing things in colour at the time. And it was like really unusual, I was drawing these kind of really cartoonish, colourful graphic things because my background is graphic design and I've always kind of loved colour and pop but it was kind of like it was all very black and white and lots of line drawing lots of shadows and kind of you know really montages and things and I was doing these kind of poppy things now everyone's kind of doing poppy things and I'm kind of thinking oh like another five years everyone's going to go back to drawing really moody kind of black and white. The architectural landscape over the last 10 years is definitely opened up to different approaches to connecting with objects or people connecting with each other. I do feel like we are postmodern. There is, I guess, like a, a pop quality that we do try to go for in our work and that there is a legibility that we do want the work to have outside of just the architectural profession. But there is a little bit of mystery that we want to kind of preserve in it as well. It's a much different thing these days that, I mean, if I was, if we were to talk about like connecting with people or connecting objects, uh, even when I was in grad school, like that was really not that cool of a thing to do. I mean, it was starting to become, but I think again, that was something that we were definitely acting against. We can't be pleasurable if we aren't allowing people to engage with the work. And we want our objects to also have their own set of pleasure, so they have to engage with each other in some sort of way. We haven't figured out a way of separating out objects, people, animals, anything from our work, because otherwise it doesn't exist. That means engaging with people at all different levels either through imagery, storytelling, delight and pleasure, color, anything that kind of floats people's boats. It was kind of a liberating thing, too. It's like, all right, our spectrum is much more wide. And it actually felt like it was allowed us to be more playful because we didn't have sort of a strict set of rules to kind of operate under. Strict, strict set of rules that we didn't quite understand that were imposed on us from generations of other architects working through different problems. Next, we'll hear from James Tate, who begins to move the conversation toward the topic of education. When I arrived in grad school, I maybe incidentally arrived into a school that had a very long relationship 
with postmodernism in Yale, and that Charles Moore is kind of still kind of present in the school. The dean is actually one of the people who we most associate with postmodernism, and even figures like Eisenman, even though that's a different side of postmodernism than maybe the side that we're seeing being kind of toyed with today, his kind of dialogue with that moment is really important as well. And so it definitely found its way into influencing my work. I mean, I, th I think also growing up in a place like Houston, which is probably one of the more postmodern cities in the U.S., definitely had an influence. We asked James if postmodernism was actually operative as a discourse when he was a student. Uh, it was just starting to, uh, I think, in, in my third year, I took a studio with Eisenman, which was dealing with a kind of partial figure, which was coming from kind of multiple influences, be it Deleuze on Francis Bacon. We were also reading a very rough draft of Pierre Vittorio's book that eventually became the Absolute Architecture book. And certain themes that were part of that, you know, dealing with typology, dealing with kind of legib issues of legibility, all of those issues are ones that, that we find in postmodernism of issues that were being taken up. And I think that, but there was an attempt to say, okay, what, you know, after this, after this 20 year period of, of not really talking about those issues, what can contemporary thought bring to those? I, th I think one of the big differences right now between postmodernism, and, and when I talk about postmodernism, I'm probably talking less about when it became kind of taken over within 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 the professional practice side of it and more of the the kind of discursive ideas that it was working through early on which I think dealt with issues of part to whole typology drawing all of those things and and I think a lot of that has to do with I've always, or at least for the last 15 years or so, known that, that my own practice would be somehow both connected with one foot into the, a university and, and then one foot in professional practice. And so for me, postmodernism was, a, was, a really, was an approach in architecture that was trying to negotiate between those two worlds. For better, for worse... The work that happens in the university is distinct from what happens in, in the profession. I mean, I've, I've spent years working in, in offices and, and years being in school or continuing to teach in school. I think I was in school particularly at a moment when there was, when there was an attempt to, to really dissolve those boundaries. I mean, where, where practice and pedagogy were, were really one in this, attempting to be one in the same thing. And I, and I think I take a position today of not wanting them to be purely severed from one another, but trying to figure out where it's advantageous for the university to have, to allow you to have a certain level of autonomy from the world, but then also how, how certain constraints in the world can also potentially be productive for pushing on things that we might understand as more kind of conceptual ideas in architecture or issues of typology. I, I, I mean, type has been something that 
has kind of always been a little bit in the back of my head. And when I'm when I'm thinking about types, it's both a uh, an affinity toward what those kind of types collectively, how they assemble over time and how they change over time, but also type is also a big problem as, as well because of because of its legibility. And so, I mean, I think that you, you'll find in my work that, that these questions about legibility and about, about part-to-part relationships are really constant things that come up. To build on James's outline of his generation's education in relationship to postmodernism, let's jump back to Andrew and Anna, whom we asked why they think certain tropes are making a return. The reason why I think a lot of this has happened is a, a reaction to the way in which my, our teachers taught us, which was a kind of ahistorical, you don't need to know the stuff that came before us because it's already sort of embedded in us. And so we didn't, there was this a, a kind of intentional distancing from this basic, like just sort of like uh, architectural history, honestly. And when I got out of school, I had a, like a real anxiety about that. I'd never been taught about, I'd never really been shown or taught how to think about precedent. And I really, in some cases, didn't know anything about architecture prior to, let's say, you know, 1995. Because it had been, like, I'd taken architectural history classes, but it had never been addressed in my design studios. And when I started teaching, like, a lot of that stuff came out of it, like, a lot of my interest in those things came out of an anxiety about the things that I didn't know and wanted to learn. And then I almost couldn't help but kind of collapse those two things into a set of like very early projects. So like I built these columns which were based on fluting and intasis, which I didn't know anything about. And I simply didn't, and someone mentioned those words to me, I didn't know about them. I read about them and I couldn't help but sort of, let's say, collapse those things into a kind of, into a design project. And so I think some of it comes from that, a kind of anxiety about our relationship to or knowledge or understanding of architectural history based on the things that we weren't taught when we were students. And I, so that, and I've answered this question that way many times, but that's how I view the kind of return to it, at least personally, and based on conversations with close friends who I think have similar anxieties. I think there's a generation of people who were told to, to move away from those things, and they, and they move so rad, they move so far away from them, they didn't want to teach those things, and then they produced a kind of micro-generation that then all of a sudden they sort of bred an anxiety in them that they didn't understand all of these other things. You know, like, I mean, Scott Cohen specifically said to me, like, you don't need to know Eisenman because Eisenman's in me. And so, like, and in Eisenman is Colin Rowe. So why read that stuff, right? Like, why return to that? Like, I'm already offering, I'm the kind of evolution of these things. This maybe comes back to the idea of teaching and how much teaching has influenced our practice. One way to maybe talk about Postmodernism is to replace that word with something like post-digital production, because in some ways that kind of loss of memory that Andrew is talking about probably came out of a very productive time in uh, architectural pedagogy that dealt with uh, a kind of technical project, and that technical project revolved around digital techniques and manufacture. So if that was enough to to base entire kind of fundamental cores around and even vertical studios around. Now it seems that that material is really rich, but isn't enough to kind of continue moving into the kind of purely technological direction. 
So if its purity is getting a little bit muddied, then it gets muddied by all the other factors that have always been part of architectural production, such as looking at precedent, looking at um, material, looking at kind of gravity, looking at all the things. It's, it's not, I wouldn't call it postmodernism, I would call it a kind of influence of all the other things, uh, all the other disciplines like art or art history, architectural history, etc., on digital production. I think that that probably influences also the way we teach because now we also introduce formal and geometric ideas from uh, looking closely at precedent or introducing formal analysis at a very early stage in the core programs. So the next generation of students is being re-engaged, is becoming kind of familiar, let's say, with some of the examples that probably the generation before us was taught with, right? So we're kind of coming back to some of the older pedagogies, perhaps, in, in order to infiltrate the kind of digital production with other means. Andrew Kovacs agrees with First Office on why these tropes are returning. Yeah, I think, I think it's actually really simple that, like, it's a sort of uh, re- rebellion against what people taught us. <laughs> I think it, maybe it comes down to that. Or, and, 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 and I, I don't know if everyone would agree with that, but I think, but maybe it's also that it's more playful. It's, it is more open. It's, it's serious, but in a more lighthearted way. We also asked Andrew if he was taught to hate postmodernism as a student. Not, maybe not explicitly. It was taught to me in history classes as just this necessary evil that this happened, maybe. <laughs> um, and I don't think in studio classes or in studio you would ever really talk about it that much. But, you know, then, but it, in a strange way, like, Delirious New York was taught, which is published at the end of the 70s at the same time as Collage City. So I think Delirious New York is a postmodern book. So it was also a kind of selective of what's of what was permissible within postmodernism. So, you know, Collage City was there, but probably not as highly valued as Delirious New York. In a similar vein, we asked Laurel if postmodernism was talked about when she was in school. No. <laughs> I would say no, other than um, maybe occasionally someone would pull up a drawing like like Morphosis's 2468 house was probably the absolute extent for me of any, um, while I was in school, any actually real documentation in a way. Postmodernism was considered such a bad condition that it actually almost didn't exist. And in a certain way, because of that, there was probably, there's, and, and to a certain extent, there probably still is a huge hole in my understanding of what that actually really means in terms of architecture, because it was never actually, all of it has been self taught. For what you know, what I do know, it was all a kind of discovery on my own, totally outside of any class, except in the case I think there were a couple of instances at SciArc where, because of SciArc's interest in its own history, I remember taking you know a seminar about whatever happened to whatever happened in Los Angeles, which it has a sort of 
postmodern tinge, but not in a bigger way than outside of the sort of canon of architecture in the seventies in Los Angeles. But yeah, but but I would say that that's the only t- time or place it would ever get brought up, unless someone was trying to explain like how you make an exploded axon diagram, and then they would pull up like two, four, six, eight house drawings and like like this. Now we'll jump again to Ellie and Thomas, followed by Andrew Kovacs, who are discussing postmodernism's presence in the current built environment. I have a question. You know, where where exactly people are looking to say that things have come back or become an, a you know, resurrected movement. I think it depends which blogs or journals you're reading. Mm. If you look around what's being built in London at the moment, it's not necessarily, I would say, any more postmodern than what was being built five years ago. In fact, it might be less so. Oh, I don't know. There's some sneaky little, some sneaky little moments. Did you see David Cohn's extension? Little kind of yeah, yeah, yeah with the, that, the, the hole, the with fox, the porthole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But these are these are Who's like one, like one or two buildings in you know out of ten or twenty thousand that have gone up. I mean, there's always that issue of you know how much of what is built is actually considered mm. part of a, an architectural. David Chipperfield's columns at King's Cross, and like you know, I mean, that's not something you would associate David Chipperfield with. They're really, really poppy. I, I mean, I think there are many, many types of postmodernisms. I actually think that whenever people are sort of dismissive of postmodernists, they're probably the biggest postmodernists, and they don't even know it. And I think maybe I've said this to you guys once before that postmodernism has had such a kind of incredible impact on the built environment. Every strip mall has these kind of entablatures or fake columns, and it's, it's like strangely everywhere. I'm, I'm interested in it partly because of its disciplinary relationship to architecture, and I think the, the late 70s where it sort of is like, you know, there's if the death of modern architecture is in 1972 by Charles Jenks, then by the end of the decade, like, all these crazy things are happening. And, like, you know, Philip Johnson's on the cover of Time magazine showing off the AT&T building, which becomes, like, the trophy for postmodernism. The first Venice Biennale happens. But at the same time, postmodernism's very, in speaking totally in a very, very broad way, because there are many types of postmodernism. Postmodernism is also very successful in actually realizing buildings in, in terms of the, the, say, the business of architecture. That's also a weird thing about maybe, I guess, a larger thing, which is kind of the, arch- the role of the architect at large today. I, I don't really know if architects, I mean, I think we should, but I don't really know if we really communicate utopian visions anymore. And that's a kind of depressing thing to say. Here we asked Andrew, what do we do instead? Well, generally speaking, we make buildings. <laughs> and, and then in certain contexts, we argue about different ways of making or how we should make buildings. But, you know, we're at the service of others in a way. So, like, some of those things in there would, are kind of interesting, like the school bus. Like, you know, those are people in the service of themselves, which is actually pretty liberating, I think. That you know that you could sort of 
that anyone can kind of be an architect. But then, of course, architects don't want to hear that because, you know, then why do, why do we need to exist? You've been listening to a conversation on postmodernism. Interviews were conducted by Joseph Bedford, Kurt Gambetta, Mark Achari, Joanna Grant, and Kevin Pazik between 2014 and 2015. Produced for the third issue of Attention, the Princeton Audio Journal for Architecture, in 2016 by Griffin Ofish.